Welcome back, everybody, to Uncensored CMO. Now, in this episode, we're going to talk about what might be the single biggest tech disruption of the modern age, the metaverse. Now, I know you'll have an opinion on it. Every marketer's got an opinion on whether the metaverse is a real thing or not. So I thought I'd ask the person responsible for persuading the world to embrace the metaverse. He works at Meta and he's Dave Kaufman. He also has previous because he previously worked at Google, where he's in charge of Google Glass. And as a slight twist, he also spent some time at the White House working for President Obama. So he's more equipped probably than anyone else to tell us, is the metaverse going to become the next big thing? Here it is, my interview with Dave Kaufman. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Good. Great to have you. Um, you, you were just telling me earlier that you've listened to a few back episodes uh, of The Uncensored CMO. Any, any ones particularly jump out at you? A big fan. I was just listening last night to uh, one of the episodes, the more recent ones with Orlando Wood, who I know is your uh, most recurring guest. But having read Lookout and Lemon, I tend to gravitate toward any of, the, any of the ones that he's on. Love the ones with Mark Ritson and the profanity and the insights he brings to the podcast. But uh, I tend to enjoy all of the episodes, except for the one you put up making fun of the metaverse. Well, I, I, I thought you were going to say that. So well, we uh, have to talk about th- that one. This is this today. is this is your opportunity. So if Tom Goodwin's listening, we we have the man behind the metaverse himself here okay. to come and put, put the case for the defense. I'm sure Tom will be listening <laughs> to this episode. We haven't had a chance to meet, but I'm sure he's a huge fan. <laughs> Indeed, he is. And and you've done the mini NBA as well, haven't you? I did. I was a huge fan. Uh, I think that it's as much as you can learn about marketing in 12 weeks. And Mark Ritson brings, again, his profanity to it and it's built something quite interesting. Now, we're going to get into your career because you've had a really fascinating and interesting career and done some quite different things. And we'll get into some of the differences in a second. Um, But just before we do, um, Elon versus Mark in a fight. (laughs) Who wins? Uh, Mark would take that one, hands down. Uh, the world had a chance to get the answer to it themselves. Elon decided not to take the fight on, uh, but feel pretty confident about Mark in that one. I, I, th- I think um, Elon would have the trash talk. You know, you know when the boxers are kind of like chatting in the press conference? I think he's got that down. Mark would probably turn up and actually be the fitter. Yeah, unfortunately, trash talk doesn't get you too far once you're actually in the octagon. So uh, Mark might be a bit quieter, but... No doubt he would take it, that it fight. Actually, it, it actually can deliver. That's brilliant. Um, now, we're talking about Mark Ritson. One of the uh, articles he wrote recently that's kind of really taken off yeah. is US versus UK. And I thought, well, look, you're over here from San Francisco. Um, maybe you, I could get the case the case for American marketing. Well, 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 what's your take on his hypothesis about kind of where, where are we US versus UK? Because you're in a good position because, you, you know, you're, you've done the course you know, you're well-versed in kind of marketing science and the stuff Mark's talk, Mark talks about. Is there truth to what you're saying, do you reckon? I unfortunately think there's a lot of truth to it. So I think it's binary to say that marketing in the UK is great and marketing in the US is terrible. It's obviously not the case. I think there's a lot of great marketing in the US. But I think that there is less of a value placed on marketing education and less of a value placed on really understanding what marketing effectiveness means. Uh, and that comes through in a lot of poor American advertising as well. So this is something I've heard Mark talk about since he posted that article. But when you think about the great marketing thinkers today, Les Binet, Mark himself, Orlando Wood, none of these people are American. They are coming from Great Britain. They're coming from Australia. They're coming from elsewhere. And America is kind of lacking for that uh, marketing visionary at the moment, I would say. And so I unfortunately agree with a lot of what Mark has written on the topic. Now, you also put a post out on LinkedIn that got quite a lot of traction, didn't you, as well? Which, I did. Uh, which uh, I know led, led to, led, so led to our conversation as well. So yeah, t- tell me, um, 
Tell me about working in marketing and not being full of shit, which I think was the essence of, or how to work in marketing and not be full of shit. What was, yes. what was the, what, is, what, what made you write that post? Yeah, there, there were a lot of reasons I wrote it. There was actually a catalyst. I forget the publication that wrote it, but there was an article that was, the headline was something like, why the Gen Z TikToker is the new CMO. And I was reading it and the article was really driving me out of my mind. The idea that this whole profession and this whole idea around driving business results and effectiveness was just getting boiled down to, hey, this isn't a thing anymore. Now it's about that. So that was one catalyst. But behind that was I've placed a big value on marketing education, learning about marketing effectiveness. When I build marketing teams, it's something that I really screen for. Do people understand the in and outs of marketing effectiveness? Do they know who David Ogilvy is? Do they read Bennett and Field? Have they kept up with Sarah Cooper? And, you know, think of the great writers and thinkers in the field of marketing. And generally, I think the answer today is no. I think marketing has become a field that is just seen as you can rely on gut, you can just get thrown into it and go ahead and throw out some TikToks and some ads and you're good to go. And I don't think there's any other profession that really operates that way. So if you are a doctor, you are expected to understand how the human body works before you cut one open. If you're an electrician, you're expected to know how wiring works before you go into a fuse box or uh, start looking at the wiring of a building. But for some reason, marketing, not only is education not valued, I actually think a lot of the times it's scoffed at or rejected as it doesn't uh, matter anymore. You know, These are old examples. They're not relevant today. So that was a lot of the inspiration it was really this frustration with where the field is at at the moment and wanting to highlight the people and the thinkers and the resources that I think are actually approaching marketing the right way. So that's where that came about. Now, I might, um, you know, I might like to think that we're ahead in the UK, but actually, to be fair, I, I've, um, I've probably done four or five marketing roles where, you know, run, run teams. And every single row, I do the same thing. I bring three books and hand them out to everybody. And what I find very interesting is the number of people that hand the book back and say, I've already read it or I've got a copy. Literally, I could count on one hand. And, you know, we we look at, I don't know, let's take How Brands Grow, you know, probably the, the seminal book of the last decade in terms of marketing theory. And there are not that many people in marketing teams that have got a copy of that book. So now, bear in mind, this is probably going back over the last 10 years. So I'm, I'm sure it's better now than, you know, when I was kind of, you know, client side. But I was always surprised, actually, how many marketers, and also it's a very young profession. So you get a lot of people that are just coming in new. They've kind of grown up in the kind of social media environment. And therefore, that's where they get a lot more of their advice, you know, from social media rather than, uh, you know, rather than, as you say, kind of marketing effectiveness as well. But it always surprised me, actually, even in, you know, big, well-established run companies. Yeah. I mean, to this day, when I'm interviewing for a marketing role, any type of marketing role, any level, I ask the candidate the same question to close the interview, which is, Someone on your team comes to you in a meeting or a one-on-one meeting and says, I want to get better at marketing. What do you recommend I read? What do you recommend I do? And I'm always looking for the same three things is, do people understand the history of advertising? So have they read Ogilvy on advertising? Have they read Bill Birnbach's work? Have they read Mary Wells' work? Do they understand where the field has come from is one thing. The second thing is, do they keep up with the data that is actually providing laws or at least theory on where we are today. So do you keep up with system one? Do you keep up with the IPA? Do you keep up with work, et cetera, et cetera? And finally, do you keep up with the great thinkers of today? So I mentioned some of them already earlier when we were chatting, but that is the exception to the rule when people mention those people and say, oh, if I had a young marketer on my team, I would point them towards how brands grow or look out or the anatomy of humbug. More times than not, people give an answer like, well, you can only learn by doing. Like sports, you can teach someone to play tennis by reading a book. And 
without fail, I see a direct correlation between the people who have that foundation in marketing education. That doesn't mean you had an MBA. That doesn't mean you went to college for marketing. Though obviously that's a great thing to have. But the people who invest the time in end up being the people we hire and ends up being the people who do the best job in the role. People who say, well, you can't learn it from a book generally are not the people I think are the best candidates for the role. But if there are those people in seat already, I see a, a, a inverse correlation in their effectiveness in their role, I would tend to say. It's amazing you even have to say that, isn't it? It's, it's funny how we, you know, it would seem so obvious, as you say, quite right, in any other profession, unless you've done the done the learning, you know, you're not qualified for the job. So it's a curious thing about marketing that we seem to allow such a sort of different approach to to, to work. Yeah, this, this happened a few weeks ago. I gave someone a copy of uh, Jenny Romanak's book about brand building because they were asking questions about it. And they said something like, oh, I saw on TikTok and I knew right at the start that the conversation was not going to be one that I enjoyed having. Oh, brand building isn't the same as it used to be. And you can't get it from a book. And what worked in the 50s doesn't work yeah. today. Of course, there are a lot of things that have changed since the 50s. But this just full rejection of anything from the past, it's all about what's brand new today, is really something that, to my core, bothers me. My girlfriend would say, uh, I should probably let it go. But it leads to LinkedIn posts like the ones that <laughs> led, led, led to you and I getting connected as well. So some good came of it. Now we are talking about change, however, of course, and there's probably no one better than you to talk about uh, things changing as, as well. Um, take us back to Google Glass because you, you were at Google launching Glass, and that's and uh, you know famous, maybe ahead of its time, I don't know, um, but but a famous big innovation that didn't, for whatever reason, stick. And I think even your your profile, you you mentioned um, about uh, you know about the, the the Google Glass or overseeing a failure on Google Glass. So um, what happened at Google Glass? What what went wrong uh, or what should have gone right? Yeah, I appreciate a different way. doing an interview, especially with the, the soothing British accent when someone does says- Does it feel, it feel a bit nicer, does it? It's nicer, especially <laughs> when you say ahead of its time instead of, Dave, you've worked on one of the biggest marketing failures of all time. Epic fail, Dave. Welcome yeah. to the podcast. Tell exactly. Me about it. Um, what, went, what went wrong? Um, quite a bit went wrong, which is why it's going to continue to be a question I get for the rest of time and why Google Glass has a- pedestal in the Museum of Failure in Washington, D.C. Um, there, are, there are a couple things that went wrong that stand out to me. Um, the first was the idea, as we were just talking about, of valuing marketing and marketing having a seat at the table, I don't think was something that was present in the early days of Google Glass or really in the tech industry when you're talking 10, 15 years ago. There was this idea of if you build it, they will come. So build a thing, we're a big tech company, people love us, we'll put it out there and they'll buy it in droves. So essentially when you think about you know, a marketing concept like the four Ps, there's a reason that product is one of them, which is that successful marketing doesn't start with being thrown a product and then saying, how do you go and build some advertising for it? So I have a lot of respect for the technology and the teams and the engineers, but it really was an engineering project that then said, hey, how do we go put some tactics against it? So that's as obvious as it sounds, a big lesson that's come into my career is marketing starts at diagnosis and research and conception and market research, not just at building the product because you can. So that was one thing. Um, the second thing which I've talked about a lot with Glass is there's a concept called uh, MAYA, M-A-Y-A. It stands for Most Advanced Yet Acceptable. It's an idea that comes from, uh, his name is Raymond Lowy. He was, he's considered the father of modern industrial design. And his theory was that People and consumers love new things, but they're afraid of anything that's too new or they're turned off by anything that's too new. So he said, to sell something familiar, make it feel a little bit unfamiliar. Maybe you're selling a toaster. And if you're selling something unfamiliar, ground it in something that's familiar. 
Apple's original iPhone is the perfect example of that. So people say, oh, the iPhone came out of nowhere. Well, it didn't. There were 12 iPods before it or 11 iPods before it that started to have touch buttons and no buttons and a rectangular device that you would keep in your pocket and would sync to iTunes. So by the time the first iPhone came out, it really felt like a natural progression. So it was new, but it was anchored in something that was familiar. Take something like Google Glass, and we're winding back to 2012, I believe. So no Apple Watch back then. Wearable technology is not really a phrase. You had no wearables. You had no voice assistance. So people weren't talking to their phones or their headphones. And here we are with a product that is extremely new in every way. So you talk to it. You wear it on your face. It doesn't look like glasses, and so on and so on. So it's a perfect example of actually violating that principle of taking something extremely novel and not espousing it in something that is in any way familiar. So that is actually like the biggest thing with me for Glass at the crux is it's throwing a lot of new at people at once. It would have been the equivalent of the first smartphone being foldable with four cameras and voice activate. You know, it would have flopped on the spot. And when you go throughout history, there are a lot of examples at it. At Maya Principle is one that really I love that. I, now, I've never heard of it, actually. But, yeah. but we have something incredibly similar at System 1 where we, we talk about innovation should be fluent, 80% familiar, 20% new. And the more advanced the innovation, the more familiar to, you make it. And the more mundane the innovation, the more unfamiliar you make it. So if you're launching another uh, flavor of Mountain Dew, make it really exotic and make it red, you know, rather than green, right? But if you're launching Uber, effectively getting into a stranger's car, then you want to make it as familiar as possible. So, oh, it's, oh, I know the name of my driver. I know how many minutes away he is. I know the map he's on. I know the reviews he got last time. You know what I mean? So you try and make it as comfortable as you possibly can. Yeah, I mean, Uber is an interesting example. I've been thinking about the Maya principles as it relates to self-driving cars. I know you were just in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah. I imagine you saw at least one self-driving yeah, I, car. Quite a few, actually. Yeah. They're, they're everywhere now. And, and, but, but, but quick question, like, yeah. why, why are they Jaguars? I, I was thinking I'm, you know, in the home of Tesla. You know? uh, you'd have to ask uh, Waymo, uh, a subsidiary yeah. of Google. They've I was very proud. I was I was walking around San Francisco, and then these white Jaguars were kind of going around with no drivers in. It's quite quite amazing. It's quite nice when you're in the car. But when you think about something like self driving cars, so if you're a tourist walking around San Francisco and you see a sick car with no driver speeding around, it is quite jarring. When you think about designing self driving cars five, ten, fifteen years from now, they probably don't need to look like the cars of today. So why do you need a steering wheel if there's no driver? Why do you need four seats where the back seat is looking at the back of the heads of the people in front? Why would you not have seats face each other? Can you have a bed or a couch? You know, there are a million different ways you could design a car if it's not around the limitations of what it's used for today. There are obviously regulatory reasons as well. So they need steering wheels and pedals and things like that today. But I think the self-driving car companies, so take Waymo, for example, are being very smart about the Maya principle, which is it's quite novel. It is a car that drives itself. That is some stuff from the future. But as you said, if you're walking down the street, looks like a Jaguar because it's a Jaguar. It is not a piece of technology from a sci-fi movie. So again, I think that's the Maya principle in action. I think the tech companies really over the last 10, 15 years have gotten a lot better about this, of understanding that, hey, just because we ship it doesn't mean it's going to be successful. And even though we are a smart tech company or an incredibly innovative tech company, human psychology is still uh, a limitation or it's still something that exists and we need to build for that and build products that people feel comfortable with. So I, I don't know if this is part of the Waymo idea, but there's a lot of big camera tech on top of the cars as well, isn't it? It's like, it looks like, it looks safe. He says inverted commas, there's no driver, but you can see there's a lot of tech, you know, a lot of cameras and there's even 
bars, you know, you know, to protect you and stuff like that. So they've obviously gone in quite hard to make it look like a, a safe driving vehicle. But let, let, let's jump from there because Google Glass, right? And now let's fast forward to Ray-Ban. Yeah. So which, which I know, you know, and I know you've worked on. What do you, you know, what, what is Ray-Ban getting right with your kind of launch of the glass? There? Yeah, so we, uh, Meta, just launched a product, uh, Ray-Ban Meta Smart Glasses, uh, which are smart glasses that allow you to take hands-free photos, hands-free videos, listen to open-ear music and podcasts, and simply go hands-free and feel present without needing to fumble with your phone. I think the thing that Meta has done really well and has done really well in partnership with Essilor Luxottica, the parent company which Ray-Ban is a part of, is it's a pair of glasses first, which technology is designed into. So the form factor of looking like a pair of glasses, and I know for folks watching on YouTube, this will yes. be more interesting for folks <laughs> yes, listening exactly. on Spotify or Apple Music. This will be less so. Imagine if you will, yes. Yes, yeah. but showing this. A regular pair of glasses. This it, your... Well, the interesting thing is you, you're demonstrating it now. So the case is the classic Ray-Ban brown case. It yep. looks exactly the same, yep. but case. it doubles up as a charging unit. Yep. And then the glasses themselves are a typical round pair of Ray-Ban frames. You can also get them in Wayfarers and other classic Ray-Ban frames. But the design constraint or the limitation was this thing needs to look like a pair of glasses. It needs to be something you'd actually want to wear. So that also comes with making decisions as well. There's no screens. You don't want this to be heavy. You don't want this to really look like anything other than a pair of glasses. And it's purposely been built that way. So when you put this on your face, you feel like you are wearing a pair of glasses. And it again, going back to what you were talking about with System 1 and what I was talking about with Maya, it is probably 80% new with 20% dash of uh, novelness to it. That is a real important design principle for this crop. Well, actually, you, you kindly allow me to try this out before we yes, yes. came on the show. Um, actually, it, it, it's quite underwhelming in a reassuring kind of way mm. because actually I was expecting kind of little screens to pop up in front of me and, you know, sat and have directions to be in the distance, that kind of thing. But actually it does a, just a couple of things really well, very simply. The music into your ear is is very clever yep. because you can hear what's going on around you and you can hear the music, which which is from a safety point of view is quite good. And then the simple button to take photos. In fact, we should actually, should we take a photo now? Yeah, please. We might I'll as well. Over to you. Okay. Um, so I put these on like this. Uh, Dave's in front of me and we'll take a photo and we'll get this out on uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn this afternoon. I look forward to being on there. Uh, there we go. <laughs> but um, incredibly simple. So I think it definitely does that 80% familiar, 20% new thing. The the concern I had, and I know when this this first launched, I just thought, what a, that's fine for me, but what about other people, right? So if you're wearing them, how do I know you're not filming me or taking photos of, you know, someone without their consent? Yeah, it's a great question. And the product has really been designed with privacy as a design principle from the ground up. So when you take a picture, when you just took a picture of me, there's an indicator light that goes off. If you're recording, there's an indicator light as well. It's also not just that. If you're covering the indicator light, so let's say I put my finger over it or a piece of tape, the device will recognize that and won't allow me to film. So the question is the completely the right one, and it's one I would expect, but I'd actually say that we've done more to build privacy and signaling to uh, parties uh, outside the product than even your smartphone. If I take a picture with my smartphone, you can do it silently. There's no flash that goes off. So we've been very purposeful about that. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to Maya. A big part of this product being successful is social acceptability and people feeling comfortable about it. So it's been engineered, as you said, to really look like a pair of glasses and function like you'd expect, but also to make sure that not just the wearer is comfortable, but that the people around you are comfortable with it as well. So that's, again, 
something that I learned back in the glass days as well. And glad to see Ray-Ban and Meta applying it to this work too. Now, now this is the first time I've seen them in the flesh. Um, when, when did they launch and how many have been sold so far? So the original one they called Ray-Ban Stories launched a couple years back. Uh, these, the latest, just launched uh, Ray-Ban Meta uh, about three or four months ago at this point. Sales figures, unfortunately, can't get into today, but I'll say happy to see the, the traction with the business. So, go, well, how do you compare to Google Glass at the same point in time? Can you compare them? I'll say I'm a happier camper today. You're happier. Okay. Okay. So on the, on the happy, on the happy scale, Dave's on the happier yes, side. You can see me smiling a okay, bit more than okay. I would have so, been in So we're not going for two epic fails then? No, 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 no more <laughs> I don't have fails. to invite you back in a year's time. Yes. My second epic fail. No, no, I'll be back <laughs> only to talk about successes in the future, <laughs> hopefully. Good. Let's move on to Metaverse because yeah. Metaverse is enormously hyped, right? Uh, it, in fact, you must be quite used to being in the hype cycle yourself, right? Because you've done Google Glass, you've done the Ray-Bans, you now do Meta virtuality um can you explain what the metaverse is because because I, I i'm not sure i totally understand and what's the what's the basic use case for creating an alternative version of reality yeah so this is where i have to give you a little bit of a hard time because do yeah you yeah, have yeah. a past podcast episode i believe the title is something like the metaverse and other marketing bullshit mm. something like that marketing hype mm. so i'm glad to be able to sit here with you today to talk there we about go. it so nothing bit. if not balanced anyway. it, correct <laughs> um so the metaverse to put it quite simply is the next phase of the internet. So when you think about how the internet has progressed over time, we started with text, then you got photos, then you got videos, then you got live videos, then you got more and more different immersive media formats. Then think about the types of devices you use to access the internet. So you started with computers that were probably the size of this room, then you had desktop computers, then laptop computers. Now everyone has a phone in their pocket. So the internet itself has gotten a lot more immersive and the devices by which we access the internet have become a lot more personal. So to put it simply, the metaverse is simply the next step in that evolution. It's that trend of the internet becoming a lot more immersive and the device you use to access the internet becoming a lot more personal and designed for you. The reason that we at Meta are so interested in this is what the metaverse provides is a sense of presence or the ability to blend the digital and the physical in a way that lets you feel like you're actually with someone or something that isn't actually there. And that's where, coming back to your question about why create an alternative world, it's actually a misconception. It's something that I'm glad we get to talk about. It's really not, the real world is great. It's not saying, hey, now do you, how do you replace the real world with the metaverse? But when you think about the way that we're locked into our screens today, it's a totally separate experience from our real world life or the physical world. And being able to blend those things to deliver a sense of presence becomes quite interesting. So just to give you a practical example. Let's say we wanted to invite a third guest to this podcast today. Let's say Tom Goodwin, who I don't know personally, but I think was the Excellent one on your choice. Yes, the one on your choice. podcast I like about the, okay. the issues. We should set the, that up. Yes, yeah. the hype cycle of the metaverse. Yeah. If he couldn't be here in person today, we'd have him on Zoom and yeah. he'd be a little glowing rectangle on a screen. And it would not be natural for us to have a three-person conversation. But what the technology uh, behind the metaverse enables is, what if he could be here in hologram form? And obviously, it wouldn't be exactly the same as him being here in person. But what if you and I see him fully embodied as an avatar and we can have a conversation as if he's there? So I don't know, Tom. I'm sure that would be a great experience. It would be fun. But what's meaningful to me, and one of the reasons I joined the company almost seven years ago, is think about all the ways that distance and physics and the technology today limits us from actually spending time with the people we want to spend time with. So I grew up on the East Coast. It's where my parents are. It's where a lot of my friends are. It's where I went to college. I moved to San Francisco. I've been out there for over a decade. There are times where I want to watch a Yankees game or a Jets game. I know I'm using American sports references with my dad. 
it doesn't quite cut it to be on FaceTime or Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp and be texting or video chatting during a game. Shouldn't I be able to put on a pair of goggles or glasses or any sort of technology that simply makes it feel like my dad is in my living room, we're doing something together, even if he's 3,000 miles away? So you'll hear me use that word a lot, presence, and that's really the anchor of what the metaverse can enable and why it's so interesting to the company and why it's been so interesting to me personally. Now, this is this is a very, very big bet for the company, isn't it? I mean, to the extent that you changed the name of the company to Meta. And um, when, how do you, how do you judge when it's going to become a success? Because one of the, I mean, we, we, we were sort of joking before I, I did a presentation 10 years ago at the European Packaging Conference, but you know, but these things do happen. And um, it was called Why the QR Code is Dead. And uh, at the time I just launched um, the world's first augmented reality soft drink. And, and it's a shame we can't show it actually, because it'd be, it'd be pretty cool. But it was sort of like you've described, but the really, really kind of early stages of it, where um, I was working on a it was a juice brand called Juice Burst. And the idea was the idea we came up with at the time was we didn't have we had no money at the time. I and mean, literally it was a it was a it was a new product. It, well, actually it was a rebrand uh, on zero marketing budget. And I thought, what am I gonna do? And I thought, well, the product's called Juice Burst, right? So wouldn't it be cool to show fruit bursting out of the pack? Right? It's a simple idea. You Very were ahead awesome. of your time on that one. Yeah, well, apparently so. Um, yeah, exactly. And um so what I did, rather than take photos of, of fruit bursting and then putting them on the pack. I filmed fruit bursting, right? So we, 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 you know, we got this phantom camera, which is kind of Hollywood grade camera, you know, uh, 30,000 frames a second or wherever it was. And then, and then we had to explode fruit and, and we had to, we put like electric charges in fruit and made, made them explode and then slowed it down. And then I worked with uh, Blipper who were then like the pioneers in, in augmented reality. And they were able to wrap the video of the exploding fruit around the packaging. So when you, you know, when you got your phone out, put your phone in front of the pack and literally the fruit would explode on the pack. It was amazing. It was absolutely astonishing. But the um, thing I remember from back then is uh, I confidently went to uh, Brussels for this big packaging conference and said, ladies and gentlemen, the QR code is dead. Let me show you augmented reality. Now, in terms of timing, of course, I didn't expect a pandemic to happen. And suddenly, like, everyone goes, oh, yeah, QR codes. I get it. You know, sort of thing. Has but, anyone ever called you out on that? Or have you been able no, to? No, no. Well, the thing is, it, 10 years is a long time, right? I was going to say, that, that's the best thing about going to a conference and predicting the future yeah. is you're never wrong. And no I know, remember exactly. in 10 years anyway, so you're good. So, so the only people, the only person that seems to remember is me, and I'm quite happy to talk about it. Yep. So, you know, but so anyway, I wasn't, I think I'm, I'm going to put the pandemic as my kind of excuse box of, well, we wouldn't be doing QR codes without it. But it's definitely a, with these things, it, it often takes longer, doesn't it, for, yep. for the technology or, or for the use case to catch up with technology, whichever around it is. So w- what's your prediction on Metaverse? When it, When is it going to get to a point where we're all comfortable with it, we're all engaging and using it? Yeah, I think that, as you said, it's not an overnight thing. And we're probably at the the dial-up internet phase of the, the metaverse today. So when you look at the devices and the types of interactions you can have, you'll probably look back on today and go, oh my God, the same way if you look at a picture of someone using a, you know the cell phone in the briefcase, it feels like it was 100 years ago. What we've seen a lot of traction with already, just in the few years since we've branded the company, is both the ways that people are already interacting with the internet, especially when you talk about younger Uh, cohorts of users. So you talk about the growth of products like uh, Roblox and Fortnite and Minecraft. These are all non-meta products, but I would consider really part of the metaverse, really deep, immersive, social, interactive products that are already wildly successful. Coming back to my world with meta, when we look at the technologies that underpin the metaverse, so uh, MetaQuest, our line of VR and mixed reality headsets, Ray-Ban Meta, which we just talked about, the growth of AI, 
Horizon Worlds, which is a social platform we've built uh, for metaverse uh, communication and metaverse social experience as well. All these things are building a lot of traction. We've seen a lot of early success success with. So I don't want to get on the stage and say, oh, well, in four years, you will definitely see this, this, and this. But all of the underlying pieces to be able to get there are moving in the right direction and being pushed not just by meta as well, which is really the most encouraging thing for us, that the metaverse is something that will be created by lots of companies, developers, creators, everyday people. This is not just a a meta bet or a meta endeavor. We just think that with the focus on social and presence and communication, that we have a big role in play in helping to, to shape that. I think part of the problem is like w- when you announce it, suddenly everyone's going, "I'm going to be the first advertiser in the metaverse," or "I'm going to buy a, I'm going to buy a town square," and you know whatever, and and you get this sort of massive hype where everyone's kind of spending money on it, and then it disappears because it's ahead of itself. But actually, I mean, try it. You very kindly allowed me to try it on before. Um, the thing that struck me just from the you know the demo we got to do was um, the entertainment value, like just from the the game, the interactive gaming, which I just thought you're right. You say it's a bit like Fortnite. And but also that as a training tool because I could really imagine kind of learning things whether it's learning a language or playing a piano or if I'm in not that I would ever but if I was a surgeon learning how to do a bit of surgery or learning how to fly a plane you can imagine how you could recreate that experience and, and train people through it. Yeah, I mean when you talk about no longer being limited by space or time or physics, I know that sounds quite hand wavy, but it's really when you talk about uh, the demo we did earlier with uh, Quest Three, our new mixed reality headset it really removes a lot of those constraints. And that these are the types of experiences we're seeing people have. So you might want to be entertained and watch a movie on a gigantic screen, but you don't have a movie theater in your studio apartment. Now you can do that with mixed reality and virtual reality. You might want to hang out with someone, as I alluded to, is 3,000 miles away. That's something you can do. You might not have the money to pay for. Might You might just not want to have a personal trainer in your flat or in your home. You can put on a headset and now be trained by a personal trainer who's not actually there. You can be working out on the side of Machu Picchu without getting on an airplane. So we're starting to see a lot of traction around a lot of different experiences. But my hypothesis is the way when you think about the personal computer, it was really work experiences that were where you started and then those built into uh, the personal experiences that people brought home and why people started buying computers for their home. Today, where we are gaming and social use cases, I really think are where VR and mixed reality and the whole metaverse concept is getting started. And you'll start to see a lot more expansion technologies, as you said, education, training, productivity, so on and so on. And we're already seeing a lot of uh, a lot of nuggets of that being adopted today. So take productivity, for example. I'm traveling here from San Francisco. I obviously, in a carry-on bag, did not bring computer monitor with me. But I was sitting in my hotel room earlier and with Quest 3, I can hook it up to my computer and have three giant screens in front of me without needing to pack a gigantic uh, piece of luggage with me. And like, that's quite a simple experience, but it's quite a breakthrough one. And those are the kind of things that as we start to see it take traction, become a lot more exciting of how are people going to use these devices and this technology going forward. In a way, I think we're back to our earlier conversation, aren't we, about familiar and new? Because it, you know, suddenly, as soon as you frame it as gaming, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, yeah. You put a headset on to play a game, and you can imagine it. So if you go from gaming to now, it's work productivity, but in a gaming style, it suddenly feels a bit, you know, much more approachable than oh, I'm going to use a headset for work, which it feels like a massive, you know, leap to take, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean the the fact that if you're able to bring even slightly more fun experiences to something like work, that's probably a good thing. So. Having a meeting might never be as fun as playing a video game, 
but there's really nothing more painful and we all have experience in with than sitting in a one hour meeting with someone on a video call and it's dropping and the presentation feature doesn't work and you can't really get the flow of your presentation going. The idea that you could put on a headset or one day a pair of glasses and simply see things, uh, digital objects rendered in front of you. So let's say we're sneaker designers and we're trying to evaluate a design. It's probably more fun for us to actually touch and play with a digital sneaker than it is to just see it present on a slide. It's probably also more fun to see you in person or as a hologram versus as a digital rectangle. So bringing fun into a lot more aspects of our life is also something that gets me excited about the product and something that I think we'll see a lot more of as we go. Yeah. And, and, and back to the system, one thing as well, like, the, you know, entertain for commercial gain. We're always trying to encourage people to, you know, advertising should be entertaining if you make if you make people smile you know um make people feel good they're more likely to more likely to buy more let's let's jump to advertising because um one of the things you notice about the technology industry as a whole is a bit of an aversion to advertising right Mm -hmm. because you got obviously our friend elon at tesla who famously doesn't advertise which i always thought was a bit bizarre because like the guy's like a one-man advertising machine isn't he i would say they do plenty of advertising whether it has paid media behind it or not there we go that's probably the distinction but exactly they've got a lot of very plush looking stores i think they call them you know with showing off the cars um anyway they don't advertise jeff checked amazon were not only doing very good advertising i think they spend a dollar or two on it I as well i think they were the biggest spender in the um if they're not the biggest spender they're the biggest increase in spending in the us and in the uk yeah. so they're spending a lot of money doing the thing they said they wouldn't do which is interesting um and back to our chat earlier as well the, the, the other i was re-watching the old um steve Vollmer microsoft mm. speech which just makes me laugh you know where he's getting a sweat on, on, going, on stage sweating exactly like this guy developers, developers, developers sort yeah. of thing. and it's like well where is the consumer in all here you know where is the person that you want to go and buy you've kind of forgotten that but anyway um but but you know does does tech have an advertising problem does it have a sort of a what is it so led by product that it sometimes fails to forget that you've got a consumer you need to talk to and explain your product to a lot of the time, yes. So there are, we talked about, we hit on this a little bit earlier, but there are still big parts of the tech industry, whether it's big tech companies or startups that solely believe, build it, people buy it, show that it's a better mousetrap, people buy it and show off the speeds and feeds. So it's faster, it's thinner, it's better than last year's and people buy it. And that obviously, as you know better than anyone on the system, one side of your role is not what motivates people to be excited about a brand or to make a purchase decision. So I would actually say that the tech industry probably more than most over-index on that style of advertising, but I actually don't know how different it is from, say, toothpaste advertisers, who I think also lean into 32% more of this new whatever that helps you whiten your teeth versus like actually telling an emotional brand story. So I do think that's a big thing that weighs down the tech industry. One of the things I've really tried to focus on in my role as the marketing director globally for the product is leaning into real people, real use cases, and telling stories about how people are using this product. So take Quest 3, for example. We could go out and say it's 40% thinner than last year, and is this much more RAM and this Snapdragon processor? And I already see your eyes glazing over as we're sitting here in person. (laughs) It's not a particularly compelling story. The way that we've approached the launch of this product is really showing all the ways which have been inspired by real people who we've gotten to show the product and see how they use it, and showing how it's bringing value to their life every day. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't think that sounds extremely novel or extremely breakthrough, but for a tech product, taking something like this, I'm very self-aware that putting a Quest 3 
on your face and wearing it and interacting with digital objects that aren't actually there is quite new and at times can be quite strange. So grounding it in the familiar and grounding it in real human storytelling, as much as I think that human can become a buzzword, has really been successful for us. So currently have a big global campaign running across the US and UK and Germany and Japan that shows stories from someone learning to play the piano with mixed reality to be able to play along with their grandma to people just having fun in the little downtime moments and playing video games on their coffee table that aren't actually there, but now can come to life uh, on top of a tabletop. So uh, it's quite exciting to see the the reception to it so far. That's definitely the way to go. It's quite for, for anyone uh, listening who who hasn't seen someone wearing the headset. It's quite fun to watch them pointing in the air like this. I was, I was watching you earlier swipe, and it's a bit like that bit in the uh, what is it in the Matrix? Not not the Matrix. Um, uh, Minority Report. Minority Report. Yes. Yeah, where Tom Cruise is like flicking through the uh, yeah flicking through the slides like that. Um, my favorite Super Bowl ad of all time actually is I don't know if you saw it, the Microsoft one from about four or five years ago yep. with the game controller. Mm-hmm. Oh my, that that game me every time as if anyone hasn't checked out look at look it up it's, it's a beautiful it's piece of work yeah. absolutely so emotional but the disabled kid and you've got the parents talking and the dad just chokes up and says you know he's not disabled when he's playing mm. and this game controller allows him to interact with kids in a way he never did before and suddenly go wow you know i i, I mean I, you know as a dad myself i just get absolute chills when i see him crack up I mean, he's, you know he's quite a tough guy as well isn't he you know you just you can see him choking up when he realizes his son can play games for the first time it's just amazing yeah it's a beautiful piece of work and it's it's something about the technology so mixed reality and virtual reality that is one of the most exciting or one of the most meaningful parts of my job with quest 3 i keep coming back to this idea of what if space time limitations didn't exist so imagine a eighth grader or year eight uh trying to be culturally relevant since i'm in the uk who is in uh, the middle of let's say kansas in the united states they probably don't have access to the same museums and trainings and Uh, all the things that a student in New York City might have. But being able to put on a headset and have full access to not just the world's information, but to museums and art and to see the, let's say, the Ice Age come to life. These are the kind of things that I think we'll see more and more adoption with outside of just gaming and social is really this democratization of access. And that's something that I'd say today, we're really in the early days and we've cracked this much of it. But when you think about where it could be 5, 10, 50 years from now, becomes quite an exciting proposition. Yeah, no, that, that, that becomes um, uh, so exciting. I mean, imagine what you can do with that. Um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, so you know, you've worked at Google while the founders are still there. Am, mm-hmm. am I right in saying yep. that? And of course, you're now at uh, Meta and, you know, Mark's running the company. Um, what's it like working for founders? And, you know, you've worked for some of the, I guess, the world's most famous founders and most prolific founders. What, what, what's that environment like? I think there are three things to me that stand out about founder-led companies. Um, the first is a sense of really mission and purpose and building for the long term. So when you work for a founder-led company, you're generally working for someone who believes they're doing their life's work. They're not a hired gun. They're not looking to add an accolade to their resume for their next thing. They are in it because they believe it and they believe it enough to start that company. And at a company like that, the culture starts at the top and you feel that really throughout everyone and everything that you do. So take Meta, for example. There are tens of thousands of employees across nearly every country on the globe. Obviously, it's a very diverse population of different types of employees. But the one thing that everyone probably has in common is that they deeply believe in and deeply care about 
building tools that make it easier for people to feel connected either with others or with their community. And I think that's quite unique. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say is about a founder-led company. The second, uh, you had a recent guest, Nancy King from Airbnb, who I don't know personally, but I thought she uh, spoke beautifully about working for a founder-led company. And she said this as well, is the amount of time that's spent on product and customer. And that might sound like table stakes. And you and I had a conversation about this earlier. How many meetings have you sat in your career where you get to the end of it and you say, not once did we mention the thing we're building. Is it the right thing to build? Do we have the right target on? We're just making forward progress to make forward progress. And again, when I think at a place like Meta and think about uh, Mark Zuckerberg's involvement in the company, there's most conversations revolve around the products we're building and making sure that they're exceptional and building great social value and that we're serving customers, billions of users across the globe. I think that's very different from a CEO or any executive whose main focus is how do I pick a new cardboard distributor for our packaging to get one cent off the margin so that next month's earning call is a little bit better? So again, it comes back to that long-term focus. Then lastly, and this is something you and I spoke about as well over lunch, was there's just a sense of speed and urgency that comes with a founder-led company. So whether you are a small business around the corner, let's say selling sneakers, or you're Meta, which is one of the biggest companies in the world and has tens of thousands of employees, I think there's always a feeling that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. And that's especially true in Silicon Valley. So if you think of some of the most influential tech companies from 20 years ago, how many of them exist today, let alone are still influential? Maybe one, two, three. So that sense of tomorrow's not guaranteed and we need to be the fastest and the first and build with a sense of urgency really permeates everything in a founder-led company is definitely something I feel that meta and in everything that we do. That's so true. I, I mean, I've, I've done both in my career and and and, and at its most extreme, exactly what you say. In a, in a corporate company, you might have entire days in kind of committee meetings with lots of people just aligning. I mean, a favorite phrase, isn't it? Everyone has to align and agree what the plan is. And then you sit there scratching your head going, no one has actually said, is what we're doing any good or not? And yet in a founder-led company, the idea will be created in five minutes and it will be expected to be delivered the next day. And, there'll be, and it's just how quickly. And it's building towards a yeah. five, 10, 100-year vision, yeah. but it still feels like, hey, we need to get this down yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, and, and you're right about the customer as well, because it, again, in founder-led companies, you, you, you're obsessed with the customer and you spend time with the customer as well. So you know, even the, you know, the CEO will be out meeting customers, feeding back to product development teams, what can be better? And, and just that customer obsession is, is really tangible. It's something I give a lot of feedback to my team on. So I think that there is a misconception that whether it's the founder or the CMO or the, the, whoever the biggest executive is in the room, that when they get into the details, they're micromanaging or doing something wrong. And everyone who works in marketing at some point has presented to the CEO, the CFO, the founder, and someone has an opinion on copy or the spot. Of course, it can be frustrating when you're finishing a spot and someone says, hey, in post, can you change it from a tiger to a lion? And you go, no, that's not how advertising works. But when the founder or whoever it is in the room cares enough to question the copy and they're doing it through the lens of, will our customer care about this? Wait, I think this is actually confusing and there's too much jargon. That's not micromanagement. That's thinking about your product and your customer first. And though it can be frustrating in the moment, I tell people, and I give myself the same advice as well because I'm guilty of being frustrated by it, that's a sign that something's working as a company that you're still caring about the little details because you're thinking about your customer and your essentially the resonance of what you're shipping first. And that's a really important part of what we do. 
I remember a funny example, you know, the augmented reality soft drink that I, I worked on, you know, um, with the QR code is dead, uh, happy days. But um, after after that, I spent about three or four years there. And then I went to a, a, a much bigger corporate company. So I went from kind of, you know, being part of a tiny team in a factory, to, you know, no budget, to running a team of, I think, 55, 60 marketers. And I remember um, almost within the first couple of weeks of starting with this big project, big new product launch going through. And um, well, the assistant brand manager came up to me and uh, wanted some advice because there was one out of the target customers they were going for, there was one big UK British customer that they hadn't quite got signed up. But that customer was so big to the project that if they didn't get them signed up, they, they, they were going to miss all their targets, right? And she was going, what, John, what, what should we do? And I called the customer. And spoke directly to the customer and said, what is it, what is it going to take for us to do this deal, right? And he's like, oh, 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 thank you. Anyway, we did the deal. And she looked at me, like, literally gobsmacked, going, you know the customer? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know, you know, I spent the last few years dealing with the, this, I won't say who it is and the person, but I said, yeah, I've been dealing with him for the last few years. And it's just the idea that somebody who was running the, you know, the department was on personal terms with, with a buyer at a supermarket and was able to get something done. But that's what, you know, family companies, you, you know, you do have those direct relationships, aren't you? You're much more hands-on, as you say. So I see this even in my role when you talk about founder-led agencies, creative agencies versus agencies that are far removed from being founder-led. So anytime I've run a pitch process in my career, kind of coming back to what I was saying about hiring, that there's certain things that I just have a good sense that when someone says it or does it, they're going to be successful in the role. When we've had a pitch process, an agency goes away and doesn't talk to us for weeks and goes into their hole and then comes back with a 100-slide deck, I generally get the sense they're probably not going to be the right agency. It's the agencies who ask lots of questions, who apologize for asking too many questions, who try and understand who don't just you know take a 60-minute meeting and speak for 55 minutes of it, but really want to understand me or my business or my team's business as the customer, same thing. Goes a long way, and I see that repeatedly in my own role yeah, as well. Yeah, that's true. It, it reminded me of a, 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 a pitch I was running on BrewDog. I was at BrewDog for about three months before getting fired. and um, But in that time, managed to do quite a lot, but in that time, Uncommon uh, were, were pitching. This is, this is just after they'd um, pretty much uh, launched as an agency. And so I had the three founders in. And I remember um, as I was talking, like Natalie was asking loads of questions and and Nils was just there with this massive pad of paper, like, you know, with his kind of felt tip pens. And he was just drawing stuff up. He was just listening and drawing, listening and drawing. And it was almost like a kind of creative session live and going, oh, um, you know, from what you said, you could do this, you could do that. It was brilliant. But but you kind of, A, the founders are there, B, they're asking all loads of questions, C, they weren't waiting three weeks to kind of go in, da-da, and here's the answer. Yeah. They were live doing it. Like, well, would this is this what you're talking about? Is that what you're talking about? What if we did this? Can you imagine? You know, it's just amazing. Yeah, I always say the same thing that love the show Mad Men, but I'm not looking for a Mad Men style presentation where <laughs> yes. you go away and then pull the uh, pull the cover Ta-da. off of the big presentation, say it's done. Communicate, be a part of it. Same thing for a founder-led business. Same thing for working with an agency or as a marketing client as well. Now, I must ask you because because um, because uh, you've obviously been working for big tech companies. Uh, you've been working for founders. You've been working on the future technology and really, really exciting capacities. But you did take a little bit of time out in between those two kind of big roles, didn't you? To do something really quite unusual. So tell us about the uh, the, the the well. How would you describe the not career breaks? It's not like you weren't working, but but uh, definitely wasn't a break. It wasn't a break. But yeah, tell me what you did in between Google and Meta. Yeah, it's a very common career path going from uh, 
Google to President Obama's White House to to Meta. So I spent a year working uh, in President Obama's White House in 2016, the last year of his presidency, on a team called the U.S. Digital Service, uh, which actually team that was designed after a a British government office called uh, Government Digital Services. So the very quick version is, you might have heard, in America, we have terrible health care. And when President Obama was rolling out the Affordable Care Act, now known as Obamacare, it's really the first piece of legislation in history that was on the brink of failure because the technology behind it was failing. The website, the back end, all the technology that was supporting people being able to sign up for healthcare didn't work. And it jeopardized this extremely important legislative and presidential policy. So what the president did at the time was recruit a number of technologists from big tech companies, including Google, to come in, really serve as a SWAT team to rebuild all of the technology behind the Affordable Care Act and make sure that uh, Americans could sign up for health care. And then the president, who's quite persuasive, pulled a little bit of a bait and switch and said to these five or six technologists, what if you stick around the government, you'll be a part of the executive office of the president, and we're going to build a startup within the White House. I, President Obama, will be the founder of it. And we're going to go around and fix other digital services throughout the government. So we would talk about things like when you go on Amazon, you can buy a book or anything else with one click. Why does a veteran who served in wars, who's owed their health care from the American government, they used to, this is a real number, they used to have 900 phone numbers and something like 600 websites to be able to get the health care that's promised to them for their service. So the digital service would go in and essentially rebuild these infrastructures and these tools alongside the civil servants already serving government to build government products that worked as seamlessly as buying a book with one click on the internet. So I came in in 2016. It was the last year of the presidency. I got the, I think the best pitch I'll ever get from a recruiter, which was- Your country needs you. (laughs) Essentially, it was, have you ever thought about using your skills as a marketer to serve your country? Wow. Uh, Which is a pretty good pitch. And obviously it was something quite meaningful when you talk about long-term vision and Mm -hmm. purpose. Uh, So I joined in the last year uh, in my first- day, I learned that using the word marketing within a government uh, office or in the office of the president, is not allowed. It has something to do with the Propaganda Act from back in the day. So technically worked in public engagement and communications, but worked on really three distinct things. One was doing external communications about the president's agenda. So really solidifying the idea that President Obama was the first tech forward president and was really the founder of the U.S. Digital Service, what we call the Peace Corps for nerds. So that was one aspect of the job. The second aspect was using marketing skills to make sure that the people who need to be served by the tools that we were building could access them. So I moved from marketing smart glasses and uh, hardware technology in Silicon Valley to making sure immigrants and refugees and veterans and small businesses had access to and knew how to access the tools that we were building for them. So marketing in a very different way. And then lastly, we were doing, I guess what you call recruitment marketing or employer branding was what we called it trying to build a tradition of public service within the tech industry. So how, like myself, do you convince technologists who are making good money working in Silicon Valley on big, hard, meaty problems to take six months, one year, two years, we call them tours of service with the US Digital Service to put their skills, whether a designer or a marketer or an engineer to help build the government services for the citizens that need the most. So that's, that's a pretty big challenge, right? Because presumably you're on, you're on a career trajectory. I'm guessing you'd be pretty well paid if you're in Silicon Valley, and you're going to take a year out to do something with the government. You know, not as a re- not where you tend to build your career. How do you convince people to do that? 
it comes back to what we were talking about around founder-led companies, which is a sense of purpose and a sense of mission and a sense of care. So mm. it is one of the things I take the most pride in about the digital service today is founded under President Obama, survived on, and grew under President Trump, and it grew further under President Biden. When you think about the last however many years, the last call it 8, 12 years in American politics, <laughs> there is nothing that both sides of the aisle agree on. So the fact that the digital service has not only survived but thrived comes back to the heart of your question is it's doing something good and it's doing something that serves all Americans. So of course, it is not the easiest pitch if you're an engineer with a huge stock option package to say, give that up, move to Washington, D.C., wear a tie, you know, live in the D.C. August swamp heat. But the right people, and really it's a self-selecting group who say, I can put my skills towards a purpose that's going to serve hundreds of millions of peoples and people and matter five, 10, 50 years from now is a pretty compelling pitch. And and how 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 was your experience viewed at Meta when you joined Meta? How, how did they look at it? Well, overall, I mean, one of the things we we look for, and I, I want to be careful because I'm saying I really value marketing education. I really value people who have read how brands grow and the like. Diversity of experience is quite important. So I was lucky when I joined the company. I actually worked for a brilliant technologist. Her name was Regina Dugan, uh, who worked at DARPA, which is part of uh, the Department of Defense. She also had a government background, so it was actually quite well-received that I knew how to think like her and how to interact with a government official. But the idea that I could think about problems a different way and knew how to tackle problems in a scrappy way, I had no marketing research budget working for the White House. I remember walking around the National Mall in Washington, D.C. with a notebook, trying to do my own marketing research for free by asking people. And, you know, Washington, D.C., great place to do that. You have tourists from all over the world, so you get a nice cross-section. So all of the work that I did was not a you know full tangent or a, just fully unrelated. It really helped change how I think in a meaningful way. So definitely something I'm glad that I did. I appreciate the speed at which the tech industry moves, which the government definitely does not. But it was an incredible experience, and it's definitely something I encourage people to consider. I do love the little insight you had in there, which is about, you know, on on when you have no resources. Because I, I remember um, when I was in kind of big corporate world, they often would say, imagine you had no money. What would you do? You know what I mean? And, yep. and of course, when you're in those brainstorms, you're thinking, well, I have money, right? So I do know what I'm going to do. But actually, when I, again, going back to my juice burst augmented reality, I actually had no money. And when you actually have no money, you've got to be incredibly entrepreneurial. You, you have to go and do your own research and meet your customers. You have to think about, you know, something extraordinary that's going to make people change their minds and and, and get you in front of the right people. It does really, you know, in one sense, it, I, my my most creative work ever has been when I haven't had the you know, haven't had the big resources and the, and the money and the budgets and stuff. I 100% agree. And I say this all the time to my team. And a lot of the teams that I manage are lucky to have significant marketing budgets working, as I said, for one of the biggest companies in the world. It's a double-edged sword. Having a big marketing budget means you can buy a spot during any ad break. It means you can work with any agency. You can pursue six ideas and hope that one of them works out. It's also a huge detriment as well at times, because as you said, without constraints, you're sometimes just throwing spaghetti at a wall. And I see over and over again, the marketing leaders I work with who are most successful are the ones that whether they have zero budget or $300 million budget, still think the same way, which is how do I work in a scrappy way? How do I work with constraints? And what's the most creative solution to this problem? 
simply throwing money at a problem never ends up the right way. So, you know, nine times out of 10, I'm happy to take the budget because it makes things a little bit easier. <laughs> it does. But you have to hire people and work with people who have been challenged to work with nothing and people yeah. who have worked with big budgets and it really creates a nice intersection. Yeah. You, you, sort of, you sort of need to have this, you sort of need to act as if you have no money and then and then the money will work in a way, doesn't it? But, but, but if you act like you've got all the money, you, you're going to become lazy. You're less likely to focus on you know what works. You're more likely just to throw money at it. Yeah. The, take, for example, the brand that I think everyone talks about now too much almost yeah. every presentation it can liquid death yeah they're doing some of the best advertising work and some of the best creative work while also doing the fundamentals like having physical availability and really interesting retail at least in the the u.s what they don't have i would assume is a 500 million dollar marketing budget so they've been had to be very smart about their four p's their creativity how they think about effectiveness how they think about mental and physical availability you know all of these things and those constraints have turned them into one of the most envied brands in the world. I think on one of the recent yeah. episodes of your podcast, you're talking about the work that McDonald's has done recently, yeah. drawing into how their IP has been used in the Disney catalog throughout years. Mm. They're a brand that probably has an unlimited marketing budget to some degree, but seems to really think with constraints and mm. think in really intelligent ways. So on both ends of the spectrum, those are the brands yeah. you have to admire and you just see continuing to do great. Yeah, they're, they're really good examples, actually. I, I love both those examples because you're right. Because one one is kind of imposing constraints, as you say, and one is acting as if there are no constraints, you know, at the other end. Um, so question to finish up on then. Um, so everything you know about technology, all the stuff you're working on, what what where would you place your bet for 2024 from a marketing point of view? What's going to be the thing? My big bet is that humor makes a return. Um, since the pandemic, I think the marketing industry has become so inward looking, so serious, really lacked a self of sense awareness and in place of it become extremely self-important, if I can be very blunt about it. So one of my favorite marketing books of the last, really the last decade has been Steve Harrison's Can't Sell, Won't Sell. Mm -hmm. For people who haven't read it, his hypothesis is simply that Adland is focused on saving the world and purpose and brand purpose and everything except actually selling the product you're hired to sell and building effective marketing operations. There is ample evidence, much of it from you and System One and looking at Lenin and Look Out yeah, and the publications yeah. you and Orlando would have had that yeah. shows emotional re resonance with work. Humor is a great way to build emotional resonance, builds businesses. So my prediction is that we start to see a return to that and that that actually starts to feel novel again. And whether it's the Super Bowl or the holidays, when I look at the lion's share of advertising that's shipping these days in the US, and I'd say in the UK as well, I haven't seen humor be a big mm. part of it. When I think about the best ad campaigns of all time, large percentage of them rely on they humor do. or at least cleverness. Yeah. I think we're going to start to get a bit of that back. And I think at least the brands that start to do that will see effectiveness uh, that others don't because it seems to be a unique strategy at the moment. I think it's right. And 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 the the prizes for there for those that do it as well because like as you say the evidence that humor sells is is very clear. So yep. uh, amen to that. Let's hope we'll see have a few more laughs in 24. I hope so. Brilliant. Dave, thank you so much. It's been great having you on. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. 
Thank you very much for listening or watching Uncensored CMO. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, please do hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. If you're watching, hit subscribe there as well. I'd also love to get a review. Reviews make a big difference on other people discovering the show. So please do leave a review wherever you get your podcast. If you want to contact me, you can do. I'm over on X at Uncensored CMO or on LinkedIn where I'm under my own name, John Evans. Thanks for listening and watching. I'll see you next time.